Hello, this is Ken Stusen. I'm a partner at Brown Advisory. Welcome again to the NOW podcast. NOW stands for Navigating Our World. Through these discussions, we try to better understand the world around us, to navigate some of the most pressing questions that are shaping our lives, our culture, and our investment challenges. As we look to the future, whether we agree or disagree with each other, the one thing we know for sure is that none of us can figure this out on our own. At Brown Advisory, we are focused on raising the future, and we hope these now conversations will help us do just that. Lithium. We've been hearing a lot about this mineral as a linchpin for decarbonizing our economy. It's the world's lightest metal, soft enough to cut with a knife. Its superpower is that it can store large amounts of energy, making it ideal for manufacturing batteries. And is particularly ideal for electric car batteries, where its ability to create lighter weight, more powerful batteries is key to making electric vehicles appealing to consumers. In the short term, lithium is experiencing price pressure. Prices have dropped significantly this year, but the recent volatility doesn't change the pivotal role that lithium plays as a critical component in the long-term electrification of the economy. However, before it can get into a battery to power an electric vehicle, lithium has to be extracted from either rocks or salt water which is not an easy process. Eric, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here, Erica. Thank you for having me. Our guide to where and how we get access to this increasingly important mineral is Eric Norris, the president of Albemarle's energy storage business. The places where some of the world-class resources are, are either in what are called continental brines. Those are largely in mountainous areas. They tend to be in very arid areas because part of the process of getting the lithium concentrated in these continental high mountain regions is an evaporation process, erosion evaporation process. Imagine a vast saltwater reservoir deep beneath the Earth's surface. The brine in these reservoirs is several times saltier than the ocean. So it isn't usable as a water source for human consumption or agriculture. To extract lithium, the brine is first pumped to the surface in a series of large evaporation ponds. You'll see those throughout South America in three countries largely, Chile, where we operate today, Argentina, and Bolivia. And of those three countries, only the first two have commercial activities. And the largest in the world is Salar de Atacama, where we operate today. And it is the most concentrated in the world. So it's, a, it's, it's the lowest cost resource, therefore, in the world for for brines. You also see that in Nevada. In fact, the first such operation was a small operation. It runs to this day from the early 1960s, uh, the Silver Peak operation in Nevada. That's an Albemarle operation as well. The other method for extracting lithium uses more conventional mining techniques. In the lithium industry, this is known as hard rock. The specific mineralogy, uh, the word is spodumene, and that is a lithium-bearing ore that can be found really in a lot of different places. Its most economic concentrations today are in Western Australia, 
The operation of Albemarle historically, if you go back many, many decades, started in North Carolina because there's a seam of it here in Western North Carolina in Kings Mountain region, which we're now looking at now reopening with the growth of the industry. There's several projects in Brazil. There's some development in Africa, and there's even a little bit in China. In all cases, whether brine or rock, that's then taken and processed into a, a, what's called a concentrate. The magic number is 6%. You usually concentrate to 6% lithium chloride solution in the case of brine or 6% lithium, lithium oxide in hard rock. And from there, we go into the next steps of chemical processing to get to battery grade lithium. This is Erica Padgel. I'm a partner and portfolio manager at Brown Advisory. As we examine the move to a lower carbon economy during this now series on the energy transition, we want to understand different opportunities and perspectives across the energy landscape. Given the pivotal role that lithium and the battery technology that relies on lithium play in the shift to electrification and away from fossil fuels, I wanted to explore this resource. There's a lot to dive into. The electric vehicle market, the geopolitical risks that may come from relying on a resource that is mostly mined in China and South America, the opportunities from innovation, including around battery recycling, how the Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure law in the U.S. are moving capital and driving investment, and more. Eric Norris is the ideal person to have this discussion with. As I mentioned, Eric leads Albemarle's energy storage business, where he focuses on the markets, consumers, customers, production, and research needed to advance lithium-ion battery evolution and facilitate the global energy transition. I wanted to start with understanding the company and how it has organized its business around the energy transition. What does Albemarle do and what has it meant to reorient the company and invest behind the energy transition? We're more than lithium. We're, we're in a couple different chemistries. And we really view ourselves uh, as a leader in transforming essential resources into critical agreements. And we really focus on four different impact areas. One is mobility, and certainly that's where EVs would fit. Another is energy. A third is connectivity, and those are all things internet and connecting the world digitally. And then the last is health. Our bromine and lithium chemistries impact all of these areas. And what is very exciting uh, on the topic we're talking about today is, is that the, the lithium that's essential for mobility is indispensable for the energy transition and transportation. The investments that are made by automotive producers today, that cannot happen without lithium, albeit in small quantities, it doesn't take a lot to go into a battery that is essential to drive that powertrain. Eric, like you, we believe the energy transition is a significant long-term investment theme. And as the largest producer of lithium, Albemarle is playing an important role in the transition. In the short term, however, we've seen a substantial pullback in lithium prices which seems a little counterintuitive given the opportunity set. As I recall, the Albemarle team is projecting a fourfold increase in lithium demand by 2030. Can you help us understand what's going on today 
What's going on with lithium prices and competition within the market? It's very difficult to predict pricing in this market. It's a it's a very illiquid and early stage market for one, and on the and on the other hand, it's also about eighty percent of the market today is in is in China, and and there's some visibility issues in trying to understand exactly what's going on in China. So let, let me explain what we do know about lithium pricing. Uh, the key components on the supply side. Lithium supply for this year uh, and even for next year is largely as we expected in terms of the amount of supply coming to the market. Demand is where we are seeing some of the some of the change versus what we would have expected. Although it's not necessarily in all the areas you'd expect, lithium is used in certainly widespread in EVs, but there's also some industrial and consumer applications. Those industrial consumer uh, and consumer applications are definitely weaker now, and that's that's a big reflection of what you see macroeconomically with. Uh, Concerns about demand with higher interest rates, uh, with some uncertainty in certain parts of the world, that's definitely weighing on that part of demand. Interestingly, EVs are up 40% year to date, which is, which is about what we would have expected. Underlying that though, there are some unique things that are impacting lithium demand. Lithium demand is probably growing slightly less than that. One is that there's been some destocking earlier in the year. Uh, the second is that there has been um, uh, some shift to smaller battery sizes in the EVs that are being sold. And to a lesser degree, uh, and it's really isolated in China, there's been a push towards more plug-in hybrids versus full EVs, which consume less lithium. So all those things are leading to a slightly lower lithium demand. But here again, we're still talking about something that's in excess of 30% growth, well in excess of 30% growth. So a strong market. But with that mismatch of supply coming in as, as expected, demand a little lower, we'd expect higher cost suppliers to start to curtail operations because with pricing where it is, we are now below uh, their cash costs and we actually are starting to see that. And so the impacts in this coming year is that you will start to see supply come offline to more uh, evenly matched demand. In that period of time, you'll see pressure on selling prices uh, until that match transpires. Eric, can we take a step back from the short term and the current price volatility and dig into some of the long-term opportunities and issues? You spend a lot of time, and really no pun intended here, energy on the automotive market. Let's dig into that market a little bit. First of all, what makes customers in this sector want to partner with you? Well, I think it starts with our history of having successfully operated world-class resources and then building the very important downstream processing capacity to bring them to high-grade battery quality products. That's where it all begins, is are those fundamental capabilities. But what really is becoming more important to this transition, because this transition in energy is very early in its stages. And there's still quite a ways to go from a technology point of view. And further, there are things like circularity and recycling of batteries once they have been uh, gone through their economic use and reached end of life. All of those factors create an opportunity for us to go deeper with those customers, to partner with them on new materials, new battery chemistries, where maybe there's a different derivative of lithium required for them to be successful or to partner with them on their recycling strategy. One of the most, if not the most valuable element in a battery recycling loop is the lithium itself. 
And just like it's difficult to extract it from a rock or from a brine, it's difficult to extract it from a recycling stream. So we can create, if you will, a life cycle sort of approach to how we partner with these customers and innovate that helps them be more successful because we should never forget the investments they're making are transformative to their businesses and their industry. Eric, maybe on that same line, what are you seeing in the auto OEM market with regard to electric vehicles or EVs? And how much time and capital do you think is being directed to EVs? We would estimate that about 1.5 trillion US dollars has been invested in electric vehicles. That comes from some outside sources that's through last year. It is difficult to overstate how big an investment that is. It's a massive lift by the industry, but it's not just with the automotive producers. It's up and down the supply chain. Global automotive manufacturers want supply chains close to where they make their cars, de-risking the movement of materials around the world, being able to build their plants with products that come from nearby regions that are secure. Those are all very important for them. And so, It's been very interesting to see the transformation that's taking place. Not only are they making very big bets to get to that $1.5 trillion, but they're now looking to localize that close to where they are, which means in many cases shifting supply chains that have historically been in one region to another. Eric, it seems that many electric vehicle makers are in a race to find lithium supply. From your perspective, How has the automotive industry approached acquiring lithium? Because of the essential characteristics, this notion that the car will not operate without lithium because lithium is the, if you will, the active ingredient in the battery that enables this discharging and use of energy from the grid. Because of that, and because of the difficulty in accessing it, there have been very aggressive efforts by all of our customers. They're trying to find ways to secure lithium for not just for the next year or two, but for many years to come. And some will do that by taking equity positions. Some will do that by wanting to partner deeply with us. Some, a long-term supply agreement will, will be sufficient. But it's a very intensive effort on their part, which has really blossomed for us as a trend within the past couple of years since the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, and indeed, if you go back five years ago, the largest part of our customer base were the people who were making cathodes, their electrode manufacturers. And that is actually where the lithium today is still used. That's the ship to location, if you will, for the lithium is to an electrode producer, which ultimately gets assembled into a battery, ultimately put into a battery pack and into a car. But that purchasing decision has gradually moved closer and closer to the point of use. I love these conversations because we often get to talk about myth versus reality. And we often hear that EVs or electric vehicles just aren't good for the environment because of the battery manufacturing process. And the electrical grid itself could produce more greenhouse gas emissions than traditional fossil fuels. What do you think of that statement? It is true that in the manufacture of the materials for an EV versus the manufacture of materials for an internal combustion engine, there's more CO2 that is used in the production phase, if you will, the building of the car. But that is far outweighed by the benefit in use. Once that car is put into use, the, the, the reduction in transportation from CO2 
associated with transportation, which is around the world, the largest source of CO2 generation comes down significantly. EVs have therefore a much lower carbon footprint over that use cycle, over their lives. And it's about half of what you would expect over the lifetime of an internal combustion engine. And, And by the way, that half assumes current grid. If you assume a renewable grid, which is another accompanying trend, which is important to this transition, then you're going to get to uh, break-even emissions on that on that initial investment that you have to make in making these materials after 19 19,000 kilometers driven, which is very early in a, in a typical life cycle of, of a life of a vehicle. It is a myth to say that this is a problem. This is a this is a big a big solution to reducing CO2 once you take all into consideration. In fact, when you look at lithium specifically, we would tell you based on our data and some external data that one kilogram of CO of greenhouse gas, let's just say, emitted in lithium production avoids, once it's put in use, more than 50 kilograms of greenhouse gas are emitted over its life. So there's a real powerful payoff on, on that. Now, clearly the goal is to drive down the um, emissions, the greenhouse gases, the CO2 that are emitted in the production phase of these materials. But the value proposition is very compelling from a CO2 point of view overall for EVs. Okay. I know this is a really tough question, but where we sit today from an end-to-end emissions perspective, are EVs, electric vehicles, better than gas-powered cars today? End-to-end? I would say absolutely they are better. They require far less moving parts to assemble. They have the greenhouse gas, the CO2 reduction feature that I talked about, and that's on current grid. As I said, there's potential for the grid to evolve and really make that even a stronger value proposition in time. Because of their reduced moving parts and and, and the like, they're easier to maintain. And while we're still proving this out, because we're early in a cycle, they tend to have a fairly long lifetime because of the number of uh, reduction moving parts, they stay on the road for some time as well. So I think end to end, it's a far better proposition. I think that the big challenge is the change. The change to, I'm no longer stopping at a gas station to get gasoline. I'm stopping at some rest stop that has an electric charging station associated with it. And there has to be enough of those to overcome the concern I have about going from point A to point B. Eric, we hear a lot about range anxiety, meaning what is the distance that electric vehicles can actually go, and is that weather dependent? And we often hear that this is one of the things that is actually hindering electric vehicle adoption. Do you think the need for more charging stations and scale will actually happen in the next five years? Unquestionably. I mean, I I think the interesting reality is one can just look at the economics. The economics of stopping to recharge are pretty compelling to service stations. Service stations today, they make considerable revenue on what happens other than charging or refilling that car with gas when the person stops. There's an incentive to create stopping points for those driving EVs to stop and while their car is charging to to purchase, to get a cup of coffee, to get a Slurpee, to get a sandwich, whatever it might be. And I think there's incentive for locations that aren't service stations, parking lots, malls and the like, 
to to draw people in for that same reason. I think there's a tipping point coming, but we can see the acceleration of charging stations happening, and I expect that to continue. What do you think it would take to have greater adoption or greater scale of electric vehicles in the U.S.? Technology plays a role. So continuing to invest in new and innovative ways to make battery uh, cells that go into electric vehicles plays a role. I think support for vehicle charging plays a role as well, but technology will allow for range that's comparable in a charge time that's comparable to an internal combustion engine, whereas investment infrastructure will ease the anxiety of a lack of being able to recharge when I need to. And so I think those are the key factors to watch for and to figure out how to appropriately develop and if necessary, incentivize over time to drive that transition. Eric, you run a truly global business. How do you think about managing geopolitical risk? We look very carefully at the jurisdictions in which we operate. Our sort of power alley for where we build and look at mining activities is Western Australia, North America, and South America, particularly Chile. All of those regions have strong jurisdictions, all happen to be free trade partners to the US where we're domiciled, that's our headquarters. All happen to have rules of law very similar or supportive of US rule of law. And while politics vary from country to country in each of those various regions, we feel our rights are protected. And that includes Chile. Uh, in Chile, there's been recent movement to look at creating a national lithium business, but that is not coming at the sacrifice of the existing lithium producers. That's about expansion. And even in that expansion, we think there's an opportunity for us to play a role. But in terms of what we have today, we have assurances and strong conviction that our rights will be respected, will continue to operate. So at the resource level, that's one way we think about it. Another way we think about the globalization of business, how we manage risks, an increasingly trade and geopolitically tense world is about having localized production. Among all the lithium producers out there, we're the only one that operates on multiple continents for our resources and on many different continents for conversion. And the idea and time is while we have a global business and we ship products around regions in the world, as the industry matures, we'll increasingly supply regions from those regions. China from China, U.S. from U.S., et cetera. So that's another way we manage risk is by being local to our customers, even though we think very globally in how we run our business. What role does China play across the global supply chain? China is today the, the world's largest producer of cathodes, batteries, and EVs. And if you actually look up and down the supply chain, they have most of the world's capacity, almost three quarters of the world's cathode capacity and production today, and a slightly smaller percentage of the battery production. They, as, an in, as a country and as an industry, have invested over a, a multi-decade period to get to where they are now, whereas other regions of the world have not. And of course, when they started doing it, it was for different purposes. It was for batteries in other consumer products uses. But that's positioned them as a country very well to be a strong player in electric vehicles. A lot of the know-how around how to process from a mining standpoint, how to process from a lithium conversion standpoint, how to make cathodes, how to batteries, some of the best companies and know-how for that uh, is in China. Uh, the, those, are, those are the facts. That isn't to, to suggest that other regions can't get there 
or shouldn't put incentives to get there. And the IRA is a sort of, I think we can assume in a response to that, try to build the same here in the US on an accelerated basis. But that's where all the China plays. Where China is not strong necessarily is in lithium resources. They do have lithium resources, but they're not the world's best lithium resources. And they, by our estimation, aren't sufficient to supply all of their EV ambition. So they'll probably be a net importer by our, our estimation, or need to be as they fully penetrate their vehicle fleet of lithium. And so you also see them being very aggressive around the world to try to secure lithium outside of their borders. But that's also important for us to think about in terms of how we operate our supply chain today. We do send a lot of our Australian rock into China to convert to, to participate in that economic opportunity that rewards our shareholders around the world, including our US shareholders. That's value we create. Now with a pivoting opportunity to the US, we diversify as well. We don't necessarily back out of China. We continue to serve China for China, but we, we move elsewhere in the world to serve the other parts of the world. In the last few years, the U.S. became energy independent, something that would have been virtually unimaginable several decades ago. With electric vehicles, we now seem to be outsourcing key components of our transportation supply chain, such as lithium, to foreign powers. What does that mean for the U.S. auto industry and for U.S. consumers buying electric vehicles? In the transition, what you've described might be the case, but once we've achieved a full transition, that may not likely be the case at all. Meaning that today, supply chains have been set up. In fairness, today, all the lithium we produce, most of it gets consumed in Asia today. That is not because we favored Asia over the U.S. Rather, it's because that's where the industry was. Lithium-ion batteries weren't to any significant degree made anywhere else other than one of three countries in Asia, Japan, Korea, and China. Today, with the growth of electric vehicles being the predominant use by far and growing for lithium, and with automotive supply chains being the preference for OEMs to have those be regionally based so that they're secure, they're on time, they can be relied upon, we're seeing a movement to move that into regions. But for us, our aim is to develop resources and sell them into regions where they need to be. The US industry is just developing. And the IRA has been a fantastic incentive to create our customer base effectively, because we really didn't have much of a customer base in the US until recently. And even still, it's gonna take a while for it to build out. But as it builds out, now we have an incentive to develop our supply chain locally. The North American continent, and specifically the US, has some very interesting lithium resources. We think one of the best is the Kings Mountain resource that we're reopening. We've looked at the neighboring Canada. I recognize that's not the US, but certainly a good partner. It has some very interesting resources. And while a long ways away, Western Australia is a very good ally to the US, as is Chile. So we feel that we're in a very good position to help enable the transition. And we also believe it's possible that the U.S. can get to being close to self-sufficient on its lithium needs, either through those trade partners or its own resources in the coming decade. It's a matter of time, I think, is the answer to your question. Yes, we achieved energy independence recently with fossil fuels. We can get there with battery metals, at least specifically for lithium as well. How have the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law in the U.S. affected your business? Within weeks, we saw people in the U.S., customers, OEMs, the battery companies that are based here, or those who are thinking about coming here, changing their behavior overnight. 
And since then, we've seen probably $70 billion of capital committed here in North America as since the passage of those bills. So we've seen a definite change in terms of how it affects us because of the growth of our industry and, the, and, the, and as I said, the scarcity of economic quantities of lithium, we were already looking at Kings Mountain given the growth that was coming on. What we weren't sure is where we would process it because again, the customer base until recently hadn't really started to develop here in the US. With the IRA's passage and the investment coming, not only do we have a de-risking and a confidence that the customer base will be here if we build these assets and then convert the, to lithium, economic lithium, battery-grade lithium here in the US, but we're also getting some own incentives ourselves, $150 million DOE grant to support our Kings Mountain mine. What that's doing is allowing industry like us to have a lot more confidence to go faster and build locally to support and sell to the customers that will be here. Maybe we can shift now to the role of technology and innovation. What are some of the important investments that you're making in new technology? There's an expression we talk about, and it sounds kind of catchy, mind to market. Uh, mind meaning, obviously, the very first time we touch something that's lithium related and market being our customers and what we can do to make them successful. Mind to market innovation. And so what I do is probably break our innovation down and its importance into three categories. The first being at the mine. There's a lot of technology and know-how that we have uh, and or are developing that is important for going after some of those less economic lithium resources. Those that aren't world-class, but are certainly pretty good provided there's a way to operate them both from a you know, responsible, sustainable way, which is a very big part of how we think about not only innovation, but our operating footprint is how do we do that in a transparent way, in a way that ensures that the, 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 the proposition we're talking about, the green proposition we're talking about remains sound. So technology plays a role as you go after these more difficult resources. So that's one category. The second is processing, the chemical processing. The needs of our customers, even though the products are remaining the same, the big building block products today are carbonate and hydroxide. Chemically, that's what folks need to put in batteries that c consumers are buying today. As new technologies or increases in energy density are being developed, there are higher standards on the quality of that. So that's one driver of innovation in our processing area. But we can also get more efficient in our yields in our plants as well. So that's another driver of process innovation. The one that I like talking about because it's people will see this and it's pretty revolutionary is a third category, which is product innovation. Increasingly, we see the opportunity that a lot of the innovations to date have been on the cathode side of the battery, which is the positive electrode. The anode side of the battery is an inert graphite or in some cases silicon that's being doped into that graphite. The future, we believe, there's a strong possibility. In fact, we, we, we believe this strongly, so much so we're making R&D bets on this, will be a lithium metal anode, which will bring up the energy tens intensity on the negative electrode and increase the overall energy density by 2x while reducing the size requirement of that battery. So that's heading in the right direction. Most people talk about, boy, can I get the cost of lithium down to, to a point where I can afford the battery so it isn't so expensive. Well, the reality is lithium is a very small part of the cost of the battery. As I said, it's a very small ingredient in the battery. The question is, with lithium as the active ingredient, how can we make better use of it in a battery cell such that the energy density is higher, and which would increase the amount of lithium in the battery, 
but increases the output that comes from that battery, and thus the cost per kilowatt hour, which is really the main thing as a consumer, that's what we're having to pay for in a battery, the cost per kilowatt hour goes down. Maybe we use some even some more expensive materials, but the energy we got from it was greater. So that ratio gets stronger and that creates a lower cost battery. What role can recycling and reprocessing play going forward? I'll put it to you this way. The richest source of lithium in the world is not necessarily in the future going to be the Salar de Atacama or green bushes in Australia, which is our world-class spodumene asset. It's going to be a recycled battery. And you put a bunch of recycled batteries together, you have a pretty big resource, both from a sustainability standpoint, uh, avoidance to landfill, but also because recycled material, to get to recycled lithium, has a lower CO2 footprint than, than going after hard rock. All of these reasons come together for us to say, this industry will be like many others. And we can look at lead acid as an example where all lead is recycled today, but lithium will be the same. You've got to penetrate the vehicle fleet first, right? There are 100 million vehicles a year that are produced and sold new, and there's a couple billion out there that are just sitting out there that are internal combustion engines. So you've got to penetrate the vehicle fleet first before you have a very economic recycling business. In the meantime, you've got to look at uh, recycling the, the scrap that comes from the battery production because there's some of inefficiencies there. What's really important for recycling is knowing that the skills required to get those minerals out of a battery are very similar to the skills that get deployed in a mining operation. What has to happen, it's just like the IRA question, it's just like the net neutral question, you need a lot of supply chain collaboration because as a chemical company, we have a lot of hydro, what we call hydrometallurgical processing expertise. That's the title you would give to what is really required to extract these metals out of a battery, out of a recycled battery, and put them back in a battery. But we're not an expert in collecting batteries, right? Collecting off, that's not our business. And then you've got to shred them and sort them, and there's standards that need to develop so, you, so that we know that we're consistently getting the same materials. So there's a lot that needs to be developed there. And so how would you incentivize supply chain collaboration? I think a big part of it is creating common sets of standards. That's often a very good start. Think about the recycling industry today for plastics. There's a number on the back of your, on the underside of the bottle or can or canister that tells you what it's made from. That's an example. If you can create some level of standardization, you're going to take that inefficiency out of the process of recycling. So I think it's on creating some standard operating procedures that are key. That's, that's a role that governments, states, industry associations can play a role in helping to smooth the path because I think market forces will help enable recycling in time because of the value of those recycled materials. Eric, would love to take a bit of a step back and take a longer term point of view. What do you believe are the biggest challenges today in terms of electrification and the energy transition? I think the biggest challenge we have with electrification is appreciating the investment that's required and the skill set that needs to go after it. It wasn't that long ago that Albemarle was less than a $3 billion corporation spending a couple hundred million dollars in capital a year to sustain what was largely a GDP growth portfolio. Today, we stand here 
reaching close to a $10 billion corporation, spending a couple billion a year to grow our capital base. And that's a journey to build that as a company. It was very hard for us to recruit, develop over these past years and get better at executing projects. We're the largest at doing this in the industry. So we need to get better at it. There need to be others that are well-capitalized, not just in lithium, but across the supply chain that come in to do this. It's an exciting industry, but there's some big requirements required both for project execution and making sure the right economics are there. We spend a lot of time helping our customers understand why the price points for lithium have to be where they are in order to reward the risk that we're taking to support their business. Increasingly, I think the automotive OEMs are getting it. They're starting to understand that. It's important, though, you're trying to mobilize not just the manufacture of an EV. You have to mobilize a whole supply chain. So I think that's a big lift. That's a big challenge for us going forward and for the industry going forward. This is a question that we've asked all of our guests in this series. Do you believe that globally we will reach net zero by 2050? I'll answer by saying it's a great ambition and a huge challenge. It's going to require a massive collaboration across the industry with some support around that, some coordination to help people make the investments that are required. In our case, making lithium the way we make it, we will be generating more CO2 in the near term. And until we find ways to, and we are working at this, we're getting more efficient in how we operate, so we're reducing our intensity. We're using more, wherever we can get it, more uh, green energy for, for the power that we run our plants. And of course, I said, that, that's enabling a significant reduction in transportation fuels, ultimately. So that's a net additive, but that's not net neutral, right? We're still, we're still putting CO2 out there for that purpose. For us to have availability of more green energy, alternative power sources, carbon capture, it's the coordination that has to take place. I think it's possible with that right coordination. It's a big ambition, though. Eric, we covered a lot today. Thank you so much for joining us. Erica, this is a topic I love to talk about. The energy transition is so exciting, and the role we have to play at Albemarle is even more exciting. So thank you for the time and the interest. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us as we continue this effort to seek out insights that help us understand our rapidly evolving world. In our next episode, Erica will continue to explore the transition to a low carbon economy. We hope you'll join us. Until then, be well and stay safe. <laughs>